0: Do you remember William Hung? He was that guy on American Idol that wasn't good at singing, but for some reason, everybody loved him. Cheap bass, cheap bass. Oh, baby, But she moves, she moves. And so for like a year, he became this weird pop culture phenomenon and was on like 5,200 talk shows and released an album that sold 200,000 copies. Whatever happened to that guy? I didn't bother to research it, so if you look it up and it's something horrible, don't blame me. Mixed Martial Arts has all kinds of figures like that. See, it all came around to fighting eventually. There've been so many interesting people who made an impact on the sport, stole headlines for a while or found themselves in prominent positions and then just disappeared. They left the MMA world behind. They made their mark and then like William Hung evaporated from our consciousness. So today I thought it would be fun to talk about 10 such influential figures that left the sport behind so we can reminisce about their contributions and find out what they've been up to since. I'm Tommy from MMA on Point and these are 10 prominent MMA figures that vanished. Number 10, Brian Stan. Before Bisping, DC, Felder, Sanko, and Hardy, there was Kenny Florian. But after him and before all of them again was Brian Stan, aka literal Captain America. The Silver Star winner turned MMA fighter was a popular presence in the cage as both an athlete and a member of the commentary team. But in 2017, he up and left the sport of his own accord. The former Marine wanted a job that was a bit more stable and something he could do while being home with his family throughout the week, something we rarely take into account. These commentators are constantly traveling, and some of them have families. That's a lot of missed weekends. And it's not like the job starts on Saturday. There's a whole fight week there. I don't know if Paul Felder has had a chance to go home since 2016. Stan, who has a degree in economics, intended to find a career in the real estate industry. He would only briefly dip his toes back into MMA, but not in a capacity that was in the spotlight, serving as an advisor for the PFL a year after leaving the commentary booth. What's Stan up to these days? He's the CEO of Hunt Military Communities. So I guess you could say the real estate thing kind of worked out. Hunt is the Largest privatized military housing developer in the entire United States and is partnered with the DoD to provide housing across 40 military installations nationwide. Safe to say, we're not going to be seeing Stan doing any kind of celebrity boxing anytime in the near future. Number 9, Jeff Osborne. From one UFC commentator to another, you might know Jeff Osborne for his stint in the early Zufa UFC as a backstage interviewer and play by play guy, although that only lasted a few years before they decided to move in a new direction. But it's certainly his biggest claim to mainstream MMA fame. Jeff had a of a monotone delivery, but he was about as knowledgeable as anybody on the sport at the time. Osborne's importance to MMA is way bigger than his brief stint calling fights on pay-per-view though. Back in 1995, Jeff started Hook and Shoot, which was one of only three US MMA promotions that weren't the UFC. During the Dark Ages, Osborne's promotion was one of the few keeping MMA in the United States afloat, and the only reason he was able to do it is because he wasn't making any money off it. He just did it for the love of the sport. The promotion became a vital UFC feeder in those early days, and also massively important to the growth of women's MMA before any other promotion in the States was giving female fighters a chance. Jeff closed up shop in 2017 after 22 years, hook and shoot's significance to the MMA world having waned long before that. His promotions fight library would be bought by the UFC for a sum that didn't quite put Osborne in the black for all he'd spent over the years, but he didn't care. Jeff now lives a quiet life in Indiana where he opened up a retro comic book and video game shop. That's awesome. Number 8. Bob Myrowitz Before there was Dana, there was Bob. Bob Myrowitz. The former CEO of Semaphore Entertainment Group, the original parent company of the UFC. As a co-creator, the owner, and face of the promotion, Bob was a massively important figure who isn't given anywhere near the credit he deserves for trying to right the ship in the late 90s, as the sport was tanking in the US due to the lack of pay-per-view distribution. Running out of money and time, Bob would sell the UFC brand to the Fertitta Brothers in 2001, and of course, the rest is history. But that was not the end of his MMA journey. In 2008, Meyerowitz would briefly pop up again for a single event he promoted known as Yama pit fighting, It flopped. There was never a second event. Nobody was into the weird walls around the circle. Besides his UFC Hall of Fame induction in 2016, Bob's remained pretty much non-existent on the MMA scene in all the subsequent years since his glory days. Bob worked producing in the television and music industry prior to his stint in the lucrative world of cage fighting. I was wearing the Rolling Stones, the Who, YouTube bands like that. And since selling the UFC, that's what he's fallen back into. He's listed as the CEO of Press Pass TV on his LinkedIn page. And fun fact: did you know that Meyerowitz produced the Ninja Turtles coming out of our shells musical tour in 1990? Well, you know now. Number seven: Nick the Tooth. For a while there in the mid 2010s, Dana White was often seen with some guy missing a tooth, whether it was at a card, backstage, in a vlog, or on the Looking for a Fight series. And that man was Nick the Tooth Gullo childhood friend of the bald father turned adult running buddy. During that time, he became a bit of an MMA personality, if you will. Besides looking for a fight and being Dana's BFF, Nick most famously rolled with Joe Lozon on a Dana White pay-per-view vlog where each submission was worth $1,000. Lozon would leave six Gs richer, Nick with a lesson in humility. Then there was the Dana White looking for a fight series. Tooth only lasted two episodes before he was abruptly dropped from the show. The reason is more jujitsu stuff. The story is silly, but the gist of it was that Nick challenged Matt Sarah to a grappling match and it didn't go well. Well, there were some bad feelings about stuff, and Dana didn't like how it all went down, so he kicked his childhood friend off the show. I'm sure they're still buddies, it wasn't that serious, but after that, Nick's time in the spotlight was gone. Unless you're a jiu-jitsu person, then you might have known that Gullo won the Masters Nogi World Championship for Black Belts in 2019. But what is Mr. Tooth up to these days? Well, it would appear he travels the country in a van with his wife, takes pictures of stuff, rolls with people, and is working on a sci-fi book series. So sounds like he's living the dream to me. Number 6. Vadim. Finkelstein. Our next entry disappeared twice from the MMA world. Probably only once if you're a Western fight fan, but if you lived in Russia or your are you might have been aware about his whereabouts. But chances are the majority of you who know of Vadim Finkelstein only know of him because he was Fedor Emelianenko's manager during a pivotal point in his career, specifically while the last emperor was being courted by the UFC. The resulting negotiations would lead to Dana White famously referring to Finkelstein as The dummy. You get it because Vadim, the dummy. Va-d- Dana is truly a marksman when he insults. Honestly, though, it was pretty effective. He's probably more well-known here in the States as Vadumi. Failed UFC talks on a private island aside, Finkelstein started the Red Devil Sports Club out of St. Petersburg, the most famous fighter on the team being, of course, Fedor. But they also had the likes of Gegard Masasi, Alexander Volkov, and Alexei Olenek. When Fedor first walked away from the sport in 2012 after defeating Pedro Hizzo, that too ended his relationship with Vadim, who would then fade into MMA obscurity. At least here, on the U.S. fight scene. In Russia, he was the damn president of M1 Global. Yeah, I bet you didn't even know that. And that's also where the second disappearing act comes into play. The old pandy would appear to have sunk the promotion, at least temporarily, because in mid-2020, M1 stopped putting on events altogether. It's been almost two years now, and their website looks like it was frozen in time. Somebody is running their social media and YouTube channel, but it's mainly to either put up random clips of old fights or wish v a happy birthday. v Number five, Gus Johnson. For as brief a time as gus johnson was involved in mixed martial arts i would argue he made a pretty big impact the phrase sometimes these things happen in mma while hilarious and endlessly mocked is perhaps the perfect one sentence encapsulation of this insane sport i've probably tweeted it 37 times that off the cuff line in the middle of a vicious brawl happening feet away that came from gus johnson served as a commentator for both elite xc and strike force until 2011 to our little community the man will forever be a bit of a punchline because of the nashville brawl, of course, but also his reaction to Seth Petrozelli KOing Kimbo Slice. Johnson screamed at the top of his lungs, the most incredible! no it was not. The thing is though, Johnson is hands down the most prestige level sports commentator to ever be involved in our sport. The man was the voice of CBS's March Madness coverage for 15 years from 1996 to 2011. He called the New York Knicks games on the radio for 16 years back when people still listened to sports on the radio. He did the play-by-play in two Madden games for Piotr Jan's sake. I know he had no clue what he was doing in MMA, but you know what? I'm glad we had him. What's Gus doing nowadays besides avoiding the Diaz brothers? He's the lead commentator at Fox for both college football and basketball, and he regularly calls NFL games. Number four, Miro Mijatovic. He was the man that brought down Pride. Or more specifically, he was the man that was held hostage by the Yakuza until Fedor re-signed with Pride, so he spent the next two years getting the Japanese authorities to completely unravel the twisted web of organized crime surrounding the promotion before delivering the nail in the coffin by informing Fuji TV what was going on, so the network dropped Pride like a head kick from Krokop, thus sinking the top MMA organization in the world. That's the short of Miro Mijatovich's claim to fame, but before he brought down Pride, he was known as cro manager. When things went south with him, he picked up Fedor and got The Last Emperor a spot on Inoki Bumbaye's 2003 New Year's Eve card, thus setting into motion his being held at literal gunpoint in a hotel room to force Emelian into a new contract with Pride FC. But what's that old rascal up to these days? Because as you can imagine, he wasn't exactly sticking around the MMA scene much longer. Has he sunk any more crime? syndicates, though? Did the Yakuza ever catch up with him for destroying their cash cow MMA business? You don't have to tune into next week's Dragon Ball Z to find out, the answer is no. And the guy is such a damn boss he never even left Japan. Miro's been the president of a venture capital and private equity firm since right about the time he hopped out of the MMA game. I'm sure nobody's held him hostage since, and if they do, they're clearly making a big mistake. Number three, Gary Shaw. He was the subject of arguably the greatest Dana White rant ever, which is really saying something. That's fucking illegal. Boxing promoter Gary Shaw saw dollar signs in the MMA world in 2006, and rightfully so. Things were really starting to heat up, and so he formed the company Pro Elite, which would nab the first ever major television network broadcast deal in MMA history. Not a bad start. Elite XC events would be shown on Showtime and CBS. As in, what the hell does CBS stand for? The Columbia Broadcasting System? What the fuck? Anyway, it's big-time network TV. And Shaw's ace in the hole, the reason he was able to drum up so much interest, was Kimbo Slice, who was rapidly becoming a massive internet phenomenon. The cards did crazy numbers too. Elite XC Heat drew 4.5 million viewers. Their debut peaked at 6.5 million. So if you don't think the UFC was sweating these guys, you're absolutely insane. A network television deal and numbers like that? This isn't the UFC of today we're talking about either. In 2008, it wasn't like it was guaranteed they were always going to be the top promotion. The problem was, well, a couple things. The MMA career collapse of their only real star Kimbo. Slice, the very negative press surrounding the investigation into potential fight fixing for Kimbo Slice, which they were cleared of. But that news broke two weeks after they'd already dissolved the company. The real problem was that the promotion had sunk $87 million into debt, and with the Slice debacle, there were no new investors. Shaw's baby was sunk in less than two years' time. In the MMA world, his name is only associated with the massive disaster that was the end of Elite XC. He talked about starting other promotions, but he never did, and thus his time in our world was done. Where is he now? He's doing just fine. Gary was appointed the head of the North American Boxing Association just last year. Number two, Bjorn Rebny. It is perhaps the greatest exit for mixed martial arts that has ever occurred. Just days after the news breaking that Viacom had replaced Bellator founder and president Bjorn Rebny with Scott Coker, a single tweet would be posted. Beyond that, complete silence from Rebny. Its content's one word all caps, Mexico. This would be the last anybody would hear from Bjorn for several years. And as such, it became a running joke to retweet it at random times when the shit hit the fan in MMA and it was time to get the hell out of there. Ironically, Rebney claims the tweet had nothing to do with his departure, but was in fact about a soccer game he was watching. Yeah, I'm just gonna pretend he never said that. Unfortunately though, no, the rest of this entry isn't about Bjorn taking over the cartels in Mexico. He actually returned to MMA ever so briefly as the legal expert behind the failed fighters association, the MMAA. His involvement in the project a major reason it tanked, as many a fighter had a bad taste in their mouths as a result of Rebny's time in control of Bellator. So what's Lex Luthor doing now? Is he selling Winnebago's like his dad did? Of course not, you're talking about a former CEO with a law degree. Bjorn's been running a company he built known as MIH Sports Entertainment, which as far as I can tell was then sold or absorbed by AMB Sports Entertainment, which is a subsidiary of AMB Group, the investment management services for the Blank family of businesses as in Arthur Blank, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons. No idea what he's doing there, but you can bet he's probably making a whole bunch of money. Number one, Buddy Albin. The early days of mixed martial arts were truly the Wild West. With so little shared knowledge and a lack of a single worldwide presence dominating the sport, there was a lot up for grabs when things were still hot before the dark ages. And one notoriously shady figure to throw his hat into the MMA ring back in the early 90s was Buddy Albin, who served as a promoter, as well as a fight manager and local partner to the budding UFC. Albin wasn't exclusive to MMA. He was actually a regional promoter for other combat sports as well. But if you read enough about the early history of the sport, his name continually pops up and usually not for good reasons. I am inevitable. Whether it was convincing the Russian mob to back a show he was putting on in Ukraine by telling them he had the international rights to the UFC brand, he didn't, or that time he allegedly, and almost 100% certainly, threatened to blackmail Anthony Macias if he didn't take a dive against Oleg Taktarov in the UFC 6 tournament, which he did. What is truly fascinating about this character is that after the early UFC era, he seemingly vanishes off the face of the earth. I've been looking for a long time, and I'm not talking about some Google searching. The dude is a ghost. Now, there is very little detail about his life outside the accounts of his involvement in the sport in those early days, but I didn't just look for what was written. I've reached out to anybody I could think of who might have knowledge of those early days that would know of his whereabouts and I couldn't find a single good answer, which is why the mythical buddy Alvin had to be at the top of this list. He didn't just apparently leave MMA, he vanished entirely. Big old shout out to my dude Luke Taylor for editing this video together. You can find him and his awesome digital art on Twitter at Cool to me. Underscore. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. Thanks for watching. Please give us a like and subscribe. We've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below. Follow On Point MMA on Twitter and have yourself a wonderful day.